0: Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to worship with you this morning. Pastor Doug, before the choir anthem, talked about the importance of pause and stop. And what a delight to worship on a new Lord's Day. The uh, great thing about creation is God built that stop day into creation. It's It's called the Sabbath. And it's a day that started with God's own example in Genesis 2, before there were any Jews, before there was any law, before there's any anything. And he then incorporated in the Ten Commandments. We're gonna start a series in the Ten Commandments, starting in January. But it's the only commandment that begins, the fourth commandment with, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And it's a, such a gift, it's also a command, how much we need to cease and to stop. And there's a marvelous promise about when we obey this command in Isaiah 58 that I love I turn to this every so often for myself for us. The prophet says, God speaking through him, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure in my holy day or your business on my day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. And if you honor it, not doing what you want or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then notice the promise. Then you will have delight in the Lord and it will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And so we give thanks for a new Sabbath day, a stop day. That's what the word means, Shabbat in Hebrew, stop. Not just worship, but to stop that the day itself looks completely different than the rest of the week. And that was God's wisdom for us. Because otherwise he knows we'd go 24-7. And that is destructive for all of us. I encourage you to open your Bible with me to Colossians. As Suzanne said as she read scripture, we are starting a brand new sermon series for the next couple months in this short inspired letter in our New Testament. This morning... Young people, do I have your attention? Good morning. Good to see you. This morning as we start this new series in this very small but powerful letter, Colossians was written by a guy in prison, the Apostle Paul, in what is today Western Turkey. I'm going to show you in a few minutes a map just to give you a little orientation geographically where this was at. You need to know a couple things about this church. It was young, meaning... Less than four or five years old. It was, a, it was a newer church. Paul did not plant this church. We'll see that he never probably visited it. And from everything we can tell, all the clues in this letter, this is a vibrant congregation. It is a faithful congregation, much like I view our congregation here. Becky and I have said many times, among ourselves or when we're asked about our church, whether here or overseas or somewhere, tell us about your church. One of the first things out of our mouths is, this is the most vibrant church and the healthiest congregation we have ever been in. And I think Paul had those same kind of feelings as he was describing this church. But there was a problem. Kids, there was a problem with this healthy, vibrant, faithful congregation. Even though it was young and had a track record of being faithful, here's the problem. There was a false gospel that was beginning to make inroads into this church. In what was an otherwise faithful congregation. A false gospel was knocking at the door. And wanting to get in. And as such Paul's theme. As you, if you've been seeing our trailer for this. Is the supremacy of Christ. Now what's supremacy mean? It sounds like a big fancy theological term. Supremacy means the preeminence. The exaltedness. The top priority of Christ. The real Jesus. In other words. This letter from the Apostle Paul is very urgent. This should not be read casually. This is an urgent letter. And it's a reminder that churches, all churches can easily get off track. Our church and any church can very easily get off track and fall captive to a false gospel and to false teaching. It never comes announcing itself as false gospel, false teaching. It doesn't wear a black hat and a dark coat and look ominous when you hear the ominous music in a movie where it's obvious, oh, here's the bad guy because he's ugly and he's got a uh, you know, black hat on and the music changes. False gospels come across looking benevolent and winsome and charming and, and, and they sound compelling. And yet this is a reminder. It's very easy to get off track. This has happened often in, through, through church history. Frequently happens in church history. The churches get off track with false teaching and false Jesus, counterfeit Jesuses. Let me give you two of the most common counterfeit Jesuses right now in American culture that are making inroads into churches. One is the counterfeit Jesus of the prosperity gospel. The Jesus came to make you healthy, wealthy, and rich. That's it. That is a false Jesus. That is not the real Jesus of the Bible. And the other counterfeit Jesus is making huge inroads into a number of denominations, is the counterfeit Jesus, who was some kind of an LGBTQ revolutionary. That has made huge inroads into churches. There are many others, but the bottom line is what Paul warns of in 2 Corinthians 11. Hear this warning, church. He says, be careful because there is another Jesus and another gospel. What's that mean? There are counterfeit Jesuses and counterfeit gospels wandering around seeking whom they may devour because the one behind them is the spirit of the devil, not of God. So just because someone comes to your door and says, I want to talk to you about Jesus, just because someone writes a book and says this is about Jesus doesn't mean it's the Jesus of the Bible. Your first question should always be, uh, excuse me, which Jesus is it you are promoting? That always throws them for a loop. Is it the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of the Mormons or the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Jesus of the LBGT revolutionaries or the Jesus of the prosperity preachers? There's all kinds of Jesus running around and that's what Paul is dealing with here. They were falling captive to a false gospel and a counterfeit Jesus. And let us be clear. Here's the danger of a false gospel. It will cause sinners to miss salvation. It will cause sinners to miss heaven and it will cause sinners cause sinners to end up facing God's judgment, which is why Jesus issued some of the most haunting words in anything he ever preached. And of all places, the Sermon on the Mount. Historically, even liberals love the Sermon on the Mount, and yet they forget things like this when Jesus said, remember, one day, not everyone who stands in front of me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven because there are counterfeit disciples and that is what this book is about so this letter has strong doses of encouragement huge doses of encouragement and huge doses of warning this is a wonderful letter right now we just finished a series on popular deceptions of our age very the, the, the very things that Paul's dealing with in this kind of a letter false deceptions and now we're switching to a letter that spends the next couple of months on exalting Christ and being reminded who the real Jesus is And so there's a lot of encouragement and warning here. We're going to dive into the first 14 verses, quite literally. We're also going to look at a couple broader themes. But most of all, we're going to dive into the first 14 verses. And we'll see three things if you have your outline there, your sermon outline. One, first two verses, there's a greetings to the church. Secondly, there's thanksgiving for the church. Quite a prayer that he offers up. And then thirdly, he's going to pray for the church. So first of all, let's dive in with a greeting. I want to spend a few minutes here and give a couple background facts. And we'll use a map here in just a second. Let's notice Paul's greeting. And in ancient letters, you typically put your name up front. Sometimes you put at the end, but typically you started with your name. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. We'll come back to that. In Christ at Colossae. And then a line that appears in every one of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament. Grace and peace to you. Or grace to you and peace to you from God our Father. Let me give you a couple quick facts about Colossae. Young people, this will help you get a little better grasp on what's going on here. Colossae was a small city about 100 miles east of Ephesus in what is modern day western Turkey. Let me put up on the screen. Just, you'll see three little balloons there. Just to give you kind of an orientation. That's Greece. This is Turkey. Crete down on the bottom. Uh, the first balloon there over to the left, that's the island of Patmos. Just to give some perspective. It's a beautiful horse-shaped, horseshoe-shaped island out in the Aegean Sea. And uh, Becky and I have been there a couple times. That's where John wrote the book of Revelation, or it was, was given to him. I could handle being exiled there for a couple of days. That's a, it's a beautiful Greek island. And then... Ephesus inland actually it wasn't inland originally it was on the coast it's been silted in over the years but today one of the largest archaeological digs in the world Ephesus is spectacular to go to a city of somewhere between two three hundred thousand people in its day it was massive and only about ten percent of it's been excavated at this point point. and then off to the right about a hundred miles or so is Colossae in Colossae was nestled right up against Heropolis and Laodicea if you know about if you know your book of Revelation Jesus dictated one of his seven letters to what the church at Laodicea in fact there's a, uh, there's an admonition at the end of this letter to make sure it's read in the church at Laodicea so at the end of this in chapter four so that gives you a little bit of perspective so Paul's writing to a young church young congregation probably not real big It's very faithful. It's in what we would call today Western Turkey, which was a very pagan, demonic area at the time. That's the quick take. As far as we know, Paul did not start this church. And as far as we can tell, he never visited this church. And more to the point, Paul wrote this letter while sitting in jail, while sitting in prison. I want you to turn to chapter four for a second. We'll get a couple clear indications of this. This isn't even speculation, this is clear. Paul wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. They're from longest to shortest. And we know those four letters are Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians. And in chapter 4, he tells us outright he's in jail. Like verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the words to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And hey, there's the first... Clue, chapter four, verse 10, Aristarchus, there's a good Greek name, my fellow prisoner greets you. Well, there's obvious clue. And then the last verse, I, Paul, so Paul typically dictated his letters through some kind of a secretary or scribe, or we call him amuensis, then sometimes he would sign it at the end uh, to just give validity. So here he's probably signing the actual document, the original manuscript. I, Paul, greet, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. So here it's very clear. He's writing, and he probably learned about this church, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 7, from a guy named Epaphras. He said, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, we know from the book of Philemon, that Epaphras was actually in prison with him in Rome when he wrote this. So that's probably how he learned most of his information about this church. All right, let's dive into verses one and two. First of all, very important. I want to note the target audience for this church. It's not merely church attenders. It's not merely the religious. It's not merely those who've been baptized or those who carry around Bibles or sing in choirs. Paul is writing to a very specific group of people. And he says so in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. In Christ. Paul's target audience is who? True, born again, blood-bought, Sinners who've repented and trusted Christ. They've been born again. They've gone through a supernatural experience and they've been saved. That's who is the target audience of this. That means he has a target. A true Christian is somebody who has come to a point where they understand they have sinned against a holy God and they ask forgiveness. I'm not talking about someone who prayed to ask Jesus in their heart when they were a kid. I'm talking about someone who comes to the point when they understand they have offended a holy God and they surrender to Jesus as Lord. That person is described in Paul's letters as in Christ or another phrase, union in Christ. And he uses this kind of terminology, in Christ or union in Christ, union with Christ, over 200 times in his 13 letters. It's a big deal. It, it is actually doesn't get much emphasis today in evangelical Christianity. But when you go back a few hundred years and read either the Puritans or go back before them and read reformers like Luther or Calvin or Knox or Zwingli or some of those, this is a big thing. John Calvin spent a lot of time talking about the benefits of being someone that is in union with Christ. And again, Paul's talking about someone who is genuinely converted. Not just someone who says they're converted, not just somebody who goes to church or someone says, oh, yeah, I prayed a prayer years ago and I was, some, you know, I, I became a Christian. No, he's talking about someone who's truly repented. They are in Christ. Now, because this is kind of an introduction sermon, I want to talk about, very briefly, at least three things Paul means when he uses this kind of union language. I think you'll find this very encouraging, especially if you know Christ. Number one, if you have been born again and know Jesus as Lord... If you are hungering right now for holiness, here's here's what it means that you're in Christ or in union. Number one, it means that a true Christian is in legal union with Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? That means that the way God forgives somebody is that he legally transfers Jesus's moral report card, his spiritual report card, to their account. Jesus lived and obeyed the law of Moses perfectly the law of God, then he offered his life in atonement, then he died and was sacrificed, then he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven. And if somebody believes in that, the Bible says, Paul teaches this, especially the book of Romans, that God takes the righteousness that Christ earned and then offered on the cross and transfers it to that sinner's account. The Bible uses the word imputed. That's banking language. You recognize that? That's banking language. It's to take something that belonged to somebody else and wire it to somebody else. That's banking language. It's imputed. And it's the doctrine of justification. And Christianity, understand this. Kids, get this. Young people, Christianity is the only world religion that teaches that justification comes before sanctification. You say, what? Rewind that. Christianity is the only world religion that teaches first God will say you're innocent and you're forgiven before you pursue holiness. Justification before sanctification. That's what union with Christ means, legal union with Christ. It means that God legally transfers Christ's perfect moral righteousness to the sinner's account and says forgiven. That's the first thing union language means. You have have this legal imputation of the righteousness of christ to your account second thing union language means when paul uses this all the time is that the true believer has spiritual union with jesus that's different than legal union you say well what does that mean well galatians two twenty, i have been crucified with christ listen to the language i no longer live not j anymore but christ lives in me what's that mean that means jesus is not just your example he's your power that's what that means The risen Christ is alive in a believer giving them gospel power to defeat sin, obey God, have new attitudes, new behaviors, and joy, and new desires. That is huge. That's different than legal union. That's a a guilt thing. That's a forgiven thing. This second one. This spiritual union means Christ is alive, actually giving you the power to obey. And the third thing Paul means by union language, this in Christ in you, is adoption into a family. Some of you know the classic by J.I. Packer, uh, "Knowing God." In fact, my own my own mom just finished reading it. She's a newer widow, and I asked, I encouraged, I gave her the book. I said, "You should read this." About a week or so ago, she got back to me and she said, "I finished the book." I said, "What?" The "Knowing God" book. I said, "What'd you think?" She said, I loved it. She said, he writes with such passion about who God is. Plus, he's an informed theologian. and He knows and loves God. I would highly, if you've not read Knowing God, could not encourage you more. But interestingly, in Knowing God, that classic book by J.I. Packer, his longest chapter is on adoption and what it means for a believer to be adopted into God's family. You know what? It actually highlights a word that means so much to young people these days. You know what that word is? Belonging belonging. Young people today want to belong before they believe. They want to belong and in Christ means you have been adopted into a family and have all the rights and privileges. You know in a western individualistic culture that doesn't mean as much to us. When you go into a traditional culture or a tribal culture and you see the emphasis they put on tribal or family solidarity it's huge. If you are one of the tribe, one of the clan, one of the family you as that, everything for you that's your identity that's your protection that's your comfort that's your community and so that's one of the things union with Christ means there's legal forgiveness and then there is the risen Christ alive in that person giving them the power to obey and find joy and you are part of the clan you're part of the family That is what it means in Christ. That's a lot for two words, but I camp on that because it is a phrase used so often in Paul. And we miss if we don't look and remind ourselves what that means. Secondly, this morning, after the greeting and the target audience, who he's writing to and who he's not writing to, he gives thanksgiving for the church. As Paul learned more about this church, again, he probably never visited this church. He offered up a huge dose of thanksgiving. And by the way, as I read verses 3 to 8, this is one long sentence in Greek. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ in our behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. I'd like to point out, first thing, Something you may just like gloss over. I want you to notice the presence of the triune God in this greeting, this thanksgiving here. God the Father is mentioned in verse 3. God the Son is mentioned in verses 3, 4, and 7. And God the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 8. So already you have a very Trinitarian, triune understanding of the living God. Then notice in verse 6, Paul says, this is the gospel that's always increasing or, or, and bearing fruit. So I want to take those two things apart for a minute. When Paul says the gospel is increasing or, or growing, depending on your translation, what is he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the story of the Bible. Uh, my very first sermon this year, I preached called the story of the Bible. I try to preach it every couple of years. What's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible starts in Genesis, it goes all the way to Revelation, and here it is. And here's a clue. It's not about me, it's not about you. We're in the story of the Bible. But the main headline, the story of the Bible that weaves together all the way from Genesis to Revelation is God's promise to become famous among all peoples for his glory and to gather a people as he spreads his fame among all nations. That is the story of the Bible. God's promise to become famous among all peoples. That is what Paul is talking about here. When he says the gospel is spreading, that's because there's a promise in scripture that God's fame, God's gonna become famous among all ethnic groups, All like uh, Habakkuk 2.14, says the earth will be filled, this is a promise, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Not might be not hopefully will be the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and ladies and gentlemen I don't know how much you know about missions right now but it is occurring Dr. David Garrison is one of the best Christian researchers when it comes to Islam right now said this recently we are living in the midst of the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in history Dr. David Garrison has said more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 100 years than in the previous 1,400 years since Muhammad walked earth. That is an example of the gospel growing and spreading. And Then the next, I want you to notice a distinction Paul makes here in verses 5 and 6. Again, these are easy things to slip over. You with me? Verses 5 and 6. Look at this. There's a distinction here between the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. You may say, well, what's that? let me tell you the distinction. The gospel is about who? Jesus. The fruit of the gospel is about us. And Paul makes that distinction. So let me, let me unpack that distinction. In verses 5 and 6, he mentions the gospel. And then he mentions the fruit of the gospel. So first of all, the gospel, that's about Jesus. What is the gospel? So it's amazing. People come to Bible teaching churches. And when you ask them questions like, what is the gospel? You get all kinds of answers. So let me just this series regularly repeat and emphasize what is the gospel kids and young people especially hear this hear this please what is the gospel it is not a list of things to do it is not oh go follow the 10 commandments and maybe you'll get into heaven I have bad news for you you probably broke most of them this week I it's not try this it's not follow Jesus as a great example it's not the gospel that's paganism the gospel is first and foremost an announcement. That's what it is. It's an announcement of good news. That's what the word means in Greek. On Gileon. it's good news. It's a declaration. A declaration of what? The gospel is an announcement. It's in the indicative. That's if you know your grammar. That means something that's a fact. It's taken place. It's not in the imperative. The gospel's in the indicative. It's an announcement. It's not good advice. It's an announcement that Jesus Christ came and lived and fulfilled the law, died, offered his life as an atoning sacrifice, is Israel's great Messiah, and that he offered his life in atonement for sin and now sits at the right hand after resurrection of the dead. That's the announcement. Then the fruit of the gospel, well, what's that? That's my response to the gospel. Do I believe? Do I surrender? Do I follow or do I Reject. There's lots of ways to reject. Some people reject outright. Some people sit in church and reject just by they don't care that much about it. Our response to the good news, our, the command to repent and believe, leads to a transformed life. Paul mentions that in verse 4. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all saints. So that, in other words, the gospel leads to a life of gospel fruit that's what he's talking about here and one of those major evidences gospel fruit is love for each other You ever notice when you're around genuine christians there is something different than any other group there is a genuine love there and by the way let me just just to be a little snarky this is one of the reasons the old saying this is attributed to saint francis of assisi although there's good evidence it doesn't really go back to him but there's a saying that is what we would call in Hebrew, baloney. That's an ancient Hebrew term that means not right. Here's the old saying. Just because the gospel leads to being loving doesn't mean that loving others is automatically the same thing as the gospel. It leads to loving, but just being loving or kind doesn't equal the gospel. There's the old, here's the old saying. Preach the it says, preach the gospel always. And if you know the rest of it, if necessary, use words. That is unbiblical. That's like saying, feed the hungry at all times. Oh, and if necessary, use food. I mean, that's as much sense as that makes. True gospeling, if I can use that word, there's a, gospeling, according to the Bible, is both a verbal com- communication. Of the facts of what happened with Jesus and a loving response towards the people and towards each other, so they see that. That's true gospeling. It's both sharing a verbal message and showing love to a lost world. And when you put those together, you have a very powerful combination. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why the gospel exploded all the way across the Mediterranean basin. When you when you read historians from the first few centuries and modern historians have gone back and looked at the evidence. Let me give you an example. Eusebius, bishop of Caesarea, official uh, biographer of Constantine. Eusebius tells us in the third century. He was a third century bishop in Caesarea in Israel. He tells us that by 250 AD, 250 AD, the Christian community in Rome had exploded in size. And they were already supporting over 1,500 destitute people every day. Rome was the largest city in the world at the time. Eusebius goes on to tell us that all over the Mediterranean world, Christians were known for setting up hospitals and orphanages and food programs and helping when pandemics hit. In fact, it was so Obvious that this was occurring, that the pagan emperor Julian in the fourth century complained about the rapid spread of this crazy cult, Christianity, due to believers' benevolence and charity. So here you have a bishop in Israel saying, Yeah, that's one of the reasons the church exploded. Benevolence and charity along with a verbal message, and you have a pagan emperor the next century who says, yeah, this crazy cult keeps expanding because these people love each other and they keep taking care of each other and they keep taking care of their sick and their destitute. And that is what Paul's talking about here. The gospel and the fruit of the gospel, and it's continuing to expand around the world. And now we're ready to understand why Paul was so concerned about this church His primary concern, I told you, was a false gospel. Chapter 2, we get our only clues about what this false teaching was. There had been a lot of speculation. Here's the problem. We don't know exactly what it was because there's no name given to it. But there's hints about what these people believed. So let me show you a couple of the hints. Chapter 2, verse 4. First of all, chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 8. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. So it involves some kind of intellectual argumentation. Verse 8, see to it no one takes you deceptive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now that doesn't mean don't study philosophy. It means don't be duped by it. I actually had one of my mentors as I was going to college. I minored in philosophy and the history of philosophy, and he actually challenged me based on this verse to be very, very careful, not a good choice. And I, I you need to listen to mentors, and I tried to say, look at, I'm not, I I want to, I want to understand the history of ideas. And his warning was, well, don't be deceived by it. Well, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Nothing wrong with studying history and the history of ideas and, you know, the intellectual history of ideas. Because ideas have consequences. It's fascinating to trace them through history. But Paul's saying don't be taken captive by it. So th- whatever this false teaching was. It was deceiving people with clever arguments. It involved probably some kind of allegiance to Greek philosophy and empty deceit. The next clue is verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Chapter 2 verse 18. Insisting on asceticism. What is that? Severe bodily denial. Probably extreme fasting. Fasting. And exposure to heat or cold. So that was part of it. And the worship of angels. So there was some kind of allegiance to Greek philosophy. There was some kind of severe bodily asceticism. And then worshiping angels. And then lastly, verses 20 to 23, it had all kinds of man-made rules. There's a key indication of a cult. If with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, verse 20... Why are you still alive in the world and submit to all these crazy rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so Paul says, those are man-made. Again, we don't know the name of this heresy, but we have a lot of clues about what it was. At root, hear this, the Colossian heresy denied that Jesus was sufficient for salvation and the Christian life. In fact, you know what this false teaching was promoting? Something we see a lot in the Bible. It's, I call it Jesus and theology. Jesus and blank. That's what I call it. Jesus and blank gospel. Jesus, Fill in the blank. For Paul, in writing to the Galatians, it was Jesus and circumcision. You had to be circumcised, Paul said. Or not he, I mean, he, Peter was saying that. Paul rebuked him. You had to be, you had to be circumcised and belief. With these folks, it was Jesus and Greek philosophy, Jesus and worshiping angels, Jesus and extreme bodily asceticism, or Jesus and a whole list of man-made taboos. This is called Jesus and gospel. Jesus and fill-in-the-blank theology. Rigid self-denial, a new list of no-nos, man-made traditions, and hence Paul's theme. We're going to keep coming back to this. The complete and utter supremacy, superiority, sufficiency of Christ for salvation and also for Christian living because he, the risen Christ, is alive, giving you all the power you need, if you know him, to live the Christian life, overcome destructive habits, overcome deceptive beliefs, overcome disarming power, overcome debilitating depression, and trust in him. The last thing we see here is prayer on behalf of this church. And here we come to an incredible prayer. And as I've gone over and over this, I'm trying to boil it down here, Paul prays for at least four, best I can count, very specific things that are very concrete. And let me, let me encourage you, I've tried to be, do this more a little bit more lately. When someone says, hey, would you pray for me? You know, how we get a lot of those over text and things. And there's nothing wrong with sending back, you know, praying. But, Let me encourage you to think about, tell them what you're praying for. And here's some great examples. Paul has four things that would be very good to put in your next text to somebody when you're praying for them, when they send you a text and ask for this. Verse 9, first thing he prays for is for them to have a knowledge of God's will for them or God's commands for them. Verse 9, the Bible's full of commands in fact, John Piper has a book out, 50 Things Jesus Demands of the World, where he takes all the commands of Jesus and bunches them into at least 50 commands, five-zero commands, that are unpingent on every true follower of Christ. And here Paul is praying, look at it, if, if these people are going to have gospel fruit, they have to obey Christ. If they're sitting there pretending to be Christians but not obeying Jesus, then they're, they're counterfeit Christians. So first, that they would know the will of God. Secondly, that they would obey what they know to be true. Verse 10. That's key. You can know what God commands. A lot of people that know what God commands. They know God says be sexually pure. They know God says tithe your income. They know God says give thanks in all things. They know God says don't lie to your mom and dad. But they do it anyway. And if that becomes an increasing pattern. It's just evidence they've never truly been saved. Paul here is praying. That not only would they have a knowledge of God's will, but that they would obey God's will. And in verse 11 next, that they would have patience and endurance. What a great thing to text next time when someone's struggling and someone's grieving to say, I'm praying, I'm praying Colossians 1.11 for you, that you will have patience and gospel endurance. That's what, imagine getting that kind of text to yourself. And then verse 12, he's praying for them to be thankful. That they would be a thankful people. One of the greatest things missing in the prayers of Christians. In my prayers and your prayers. Becky and I pray a lot when we go on our weekly walks. We have a walking route. And one of the things we do on occasions and say, you know what, today, that's just due Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's a it's a habit we do every once in a while for, to just force ourselves. Let's not just keep sending up requests, which is a good thing, but that's today only do thanksgiving. And we walk our path with our eyes open. If you walk past us, you probably wouldn't even know we're praying, but we do it. And we're we're thanking God for things we're seeing, things in our family, things in our church. We're just thanking God for his blessing, things we see, that bird, that tree that blessing that family member we've heard come to Christ whatever we just keep thanking him thank him for our church and our leaders here so that's four things that they would know God's will that they would obey God's will that they would have patient endurance and that they would be thankful lastly would you notice verses 13 and 14 oh we come here young people If you want to know what the gospel is, verses 13 and 14 is one of the clearest summaries of the gospel, not only in Paul's writings, in the Bible. Verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now, again, who's us? Not religious people. True, born-again Christians. So if you've trusted Christ as Savior, repented, and gone through spiritual rebirth, if the gospel is growing and producing fruit in you, here's here's, here's the reality. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, banking language again, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is speaking of every true born again Christian. Remember, what is the gospel? It's not good advice, it's an announcement. It's an announcement of good news. It's in the indicative, it's not in the imperative. It's not a list of things to try to do to get God's favor. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for his elect. Of what God has done for those he predestined before the foundation of the world. They have been, what's it say? Rescued from darkness. That's what the world means in biblical theology. It's that realm of Satan, sin, and death. That's what it means for God to so love the world. It's not a head count. It's a realm. That's, it's, James says, do not, you know, do not love the things of this world. Jesus talked about, do not be of this world. Do not embrace the things of the world. It's this dark realm of Satan, sin and death. Notice the prayer here. that the, the elect are rescued from the world, brought into the kingdom of Jesus, and the result is they're forgiven. And there's nothing the elect did to get this, and there's nothing that God's elect can do to lose this. That's why... The gospel is such great news and incredible news. And that's why grace isn't just interesting. And it's not just grace. What is it? It's amazing grace. Because God has shown favor on some who were on death row. God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. All right. two, Two summons as we close. Please hear these. Number one. What is, what is this letter calling us to do? What is this letter calling us to do? Kids, young people and adults, what is this calling us to do? And I want to suggest two questions coming out of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Number one, are you trusting in the true gospel for salvation? That cannot but be asked because of the false teaching here. The Bible repeatedly warns about counterfeit faith counterfeit disciples, and a counterfeit Jesus. And the sad thing is how many people sit in the average Bible teaching church and aren't saved. The true gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the announcement of that, and that the hope that sinners will then believe and own their sin, turn from their sin, fear God, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the first question. The second question, that has to be a piercing question that has to be asked from the book of Colossians. If you claim to be saved, I claim to be saved. If we claim to be truly born again, is there gospel fruit in your life? Is there gospel fruit in your life? See, the Bible teaches this. Hear this, please. The Bible teaches that a genuine Christian is not just saved from sin. They're saved to holiness. And new desires are embedded in them. Desires, new attitudes, new behavior. The evidence that someone is born again is not that they prayed a prayer when they were five at VBS. That may be true and it may be how they got saved. But just the fact that somebody prayed a prayer at VBS doesn't mean they're automatically a Christian. Too many parents look back and say, oh yeah, yeah, I prayed that prayer, don't worry. The evidence that someone's truly born again is gospel fruit. Paul keeps coming back to that again. New desires, new ongoing attitudes, new behaviors. Less and less of a focus on yourself. And more and more of a focus on Christ. Someone who is truly born again and has been saved has a growing pattern of holiness. They parent different Their marriage is different. The the way they use their money is different. The way they use the Sabbath is different. The way they use time is different. Their relationships are different. Their, Their whole relationship to video games is different or to TV or the internet. Sexual purity is different. Their eating habits are different. Everything's different. Why? Because they're new creatures in Christ. They're not perfect, but they're different. There is a growing trajectory in their life of new desires, new attitudes, and new behavior. Friends, that reason that so many people sit in Bible teaching churches and look no different than the world is because they're not really saved. They're counterfeit Christians who have not been transformed by the gospel. I close with a very encouraging, very quick story. One of our first years in ministry one of our very first marriage counseling situations. We'd been in ministry for about three or four years at this point. This young couple who was on the very edge of the church, loosely speaking, came in and wanted marriage counseling. Very hardened couple, both very unsaved, raw, rough language filled with profanity and hatred. They were hated each other. And as we're sitting there, and the husband is in steadfast denial of everything and just ripping into his wife and she's ripping into him. She suddenly produces these letters that she found in his truck and ends up they're love letters from him to his lover. He still denies him. So they're read out loud in front of him. He still denies him. And then he gets mad at me. And he storms out the door. Never saw him again. She stayed behind. And over the next few weeks and months, she started coming to church. One night, right before the evening service, she sat in her living room, and she said, I want to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I, I confess, I was young, the service was starting, I'd heard this several times from her already, and I said, good, great, bow your head, pray, we got to go. Yeah. I did, I was, it wasn't the most uh, compassionate thing, and I, but I, I said, if you're serious, let's do this, and I led her in a very tender, heartfelt prayer of conversion, and she got done, and I thought, time will tell. And I can tell you, if Becky was standing here, she'd tell you. We've watched her for the last number of decades, and we have rarely seen somebody so transformed. You wouldn't even recognize her in her pre Christian state. That is gospel transformation. And that's what Paul's aiming for. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. And that's what this letter is about and what it offers to anybody who's ready to get serious about Jesus. Every time we start to do a new series, we offer some commentaries that are on the back of your sermon outline. Here they are up on the screen. We try to offer one in each category of popular level, intermediate, and advanced. Popular level, Warren Worsby, Be Complete. Great commentary, Worsby, can't go wrong, Worsby. Second one in between, intermediate one by Doug Moo. We've given this one to all of our community group leaders. It's very good. Doug Moo teaches at Wheaton Graduate School. And then the third one, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, sorry, and written by Dr. G.K. Beale, very good Greek scholar and New Testament scholar on the East Coast. So I want to encourage you to get one of these and follow along and dig into this book and make sure you're a true follower of Jesus and not a counterfeit. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you for this book. And so here's what I pray for our church. That as we go through this letter for the next two months and unpack it and dissect it. That we would not be the same church when it's over. That I would not be the same pastor when it's over. I pray for some who've been sitting here for years. Young people, children, or or adults who have not been saved, that they would be saved. We would see new conversions, new baptisms. And there would be a renewed life in our church. Father, bring renewal as the word of God is preached. May this church and other churches in our area that are committed to the gospel have a new freshness and sense of supremacy of Christ in their midst. In his name, amen.